A word of caution. This episode contains depictions of murder and domestic violence that may be disturbing. Listener discretion is advised for anyone under the age of 13. In 2021, I discussed several cold cases involving Indigenous women and girls, including the murder of five-year-old Brittany Locklear, who was kidnapped and later found murdered in Hope County. If you'd like to learn more about that case, check out Episode 29, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women in North Carolina, Part 1. Episode 32, Missing Teen Girls in North Carolina, included the story of 13-year-old Native American teen Donna Barnhill, who went missing from her home in Lexington, North Carolina, in 1981. I'll put a link to both of those episodes in the show notes if you haven't listened to them. Today's episode will focus on victims from the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, or the ECBI. In a 2016 National Institute of Justice report, the following statistics were published. More than three in five Native American women have experienced violence in their lifetime. More than half have experienced sexual violence, and the majority have been victims of physical violence at the hands of intimate partners. In some counties, they face murder rates more than 10 times the national average. There is much to love about North and South Carolina, but the two states have also had their fair share of violent and senseless crimes over the years. From murders on the Blue Ridge Parkway, in the heart of big cities or sleepy college towns, and along the coastal waters, some of these stories may be new to you. Some may have happened in your town. Some may involve people that are still missing to this day. But all will leave you remembering to always be vigilant about the people you meet and the places you go. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 71, Missing and Murdered Women and Girls in the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. One of the frustrating aspects of the Indigenous Peoples community is the lack of media coverage and attention to these victims. This goes back for decades, and it becomes evident quickly when you try and find more research about these cases. For example, In the Smoky Mountain Times article, Silent No More, Native Communities Call for End to Crisis of Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, I saw mention of a young murder victim named Dora Owl from the late 1940s. The article stated that the earliest case of a missing and murdered Native woman occurred in 1947 when a stranger kidnapped 23-year-old Dora Owl, took her out to Fontana Dam, shot her, and left her for dead. The article quoted her great-grandson, who said Dora did not die immediately, and after a bystander found her on the side of the road, she was taken to the hospital, where she later died from her injuries. The article went on to say that Dora Al's case is one of seven on a list of 31 Cherokee women known to have been murdered, gone missing, or died under mysterious circumstances. An obituary page for Dora Al online lists her full name as Dora Al George, born on October 24, 1924, in Birdtown, located in Swain County. However, when I started doing research on this case, I found some interesting information published in what was then called the Asheville Times. This was about a crime that took place in 1948, so it looks like the original records were about a year off. The first article ran as a news brief on April 3, 1948. It said a woman was being held by Haywood County authorities in connection with the slaying of 23-year-old Dora Al. The crime appeared to be the result of a domestic dispute. Here's the rest of the article. 
And keep in mind, the writing style of newspapers has changed significantly over the years, particularly when reporting about females. The article stated, Mrs. Al, the mother of two small children, died shortly after she was admitted to the Cherokee Hospital with a gunshot wound to the abdomen. Mrs. Doc Brock was arrested at her home by Haywood authorities and was to be turned over to Graham County officials. Graham Sheriff J.B. Crisp and Callaway Martin, special agent on the Indian Reservation, said the shooting occurred on Panther Creek near the home of W.M. Robertson. They said their investigation disclosed that Mrs. Brock and another woman whose name was not revealed accosted Mr. Brock, Mrs. Owl, and another Indian girl parked in a car on Panther Creek Thursday afternoon. Mrs. Brock, they said, opened fire on the car and ordered the two girls into the road. The officers said Mrs. Owl and her companion then walked down the road three quarters of a mile and were again approached by Mrs. Brock. This, they said, was when Mrs. Al was shot and fatally wounded. The other article I found was published in the Asheville Times more than a year later, on September 12, 1949. It was only a few sentences that read, Mrs. Lyle Brock, about 40, of Robbinsville, was sentenced to five to seven years in state's prison for the killing a year ago of Dora Al, Indian woman, in an argument over a man. Mrs. Brock pleaded guilty to a charge of manslaughter. I think part of the confusion in the history of this case is that the newspapers often printed initials instead of full names, and in this case, we see the name Mrs. Doc Brock and Mrs. Lyle Brock are both used as the person who admitted to shooting Dora Al. But the Smoky Mountain Times article, where I first found mention of Dora's murder, said it was still unsolved. So how do we explain the articles printed in 1948 and 1949 that report on the assault and murder where Dora died of a fatal gunshot wound to the abdomen? Was the conviction of this mysterious Mrs. Brock overturned at some point and she was released from prison? Or did she never serve time at all? This case is even more interesting because the vast majority of missing and murdered indigenous women involved domestic violence at the hands of a man. And for this one to have a female perpetrator was a twist I wasn't expecting. It could also explain how the person responsible for Dora's death may have gotten out of serving time for the crime, as it was the 1940s. Next, I want to talk about a 13-year-old named Jacqueline Davis, who vanished from Cherokee more than 50 years ago. And this is another one of those cases where there isn't a lot of information available. Jacqueline Davis left her home on the night of April 12, 1969. The Charlie Project website notes that she was last seen walking to a friend's house in Cherokee, and after that, she was never seen again. She was a member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians, and at the time she went missing, her height and weight were unknown. She had black hair, brown eyes, and a scar above her eyebrow from a barbed wire fence. Her nickname was Jackie. Anyone with information on her case is asked to contact the Bureau of Indian Affairs in Nashville, Tennessee, at 615-564-6600. And now, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Cold weather is upon us. I don't know about you, but my skin is always in desperate need of moisture during this time of year. But I don't like to experiment with a lot of different products at high price points if they won't work for me. Enter the products from SkinX Erin. I use her pre-cleanse oil, hydrating beauty oil, and perfecting night oil, and I was hooked from the first drop. 
The pre-cleanse gently removes dirt, impurities, and even waterproof makeup without tugging, all without stripping or drying out your skin. In addition to keeping your skin clear, it also helps your skin feel firmer and reduces the signs of aging. The Hydrating Beauty Oil is a powerful and effective skin hydrator that never leaves your skin feeling greasy. The Signature Squalene Oil is known for its anti-inflammatory and anti-aging properties. It's perfect for treating skin conditions like acne and eczema and reducing the appearance of wrinkles. The Perfecting Night Oil is loaded with vitamins E and A and is rich with antioxidants and omegas that nourish skin, replenish elasticity, and reduce stretch marks. A few drops a day leave skin smoother, more vibrant, and youthful. Want to try out the products for yourself? Go to shopxaron.com and use the code MISSINGCAROLINAS10 for a 10% discount on your order. If you're listening to this podcast, you may be interested in learning how to start your own. This past spring, I created a webinar on how to do just that, and it's now being offered as a digital course over at WOW Women on Writing. The pre-recorded 30-minute webinar will teach you examples of different types of podcasts, how to decide on a format, ways to handle the technology necessary for creating a podcast, how to develop your first few episodes, promotion and monetization ideas, and ways you can repurpose your podcast content. All written materials and resources are provided by me. I'll give you a handout with information discussed in the webinar, along with suggestions for a few different types of podcasts to explore. Best of all, this webinar only costs $30. You can purchase the course over at wowwomenonwriting.com and click on the Classroom tab. I'll also post a link in the show notes. And now, let's get back to the show. Another unsolved case from Cherokee has a large reward attached to it in the hopes of prompting people to come forward with information. On December 29, 2013, members of the Cherokee Indian Police Department were called to the scene of a burned-out car in the Big Cove community. A body found in that vehicle was later identified as 26-year-old Marie Walkingstick Pheasant. She was survived by two children and her husband, Ernest. There is not much information available about Marie's death, other than the police suspect foul play and it remains an active investigation. On November 21, 2022, the Cherokee Indian Police Department announced the reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible was being increased from $5,000 to $50,000. Anyone with information about the death of Marie Walkingstick Pheasant is asked to contact the Public Safety Communication Center at 828-497-4131. In October of 2020, another wife and mother of two from the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians named Danielle Brady Hicks was violently murdered. On October 5th of that year, dispatchers were alerted that someone had seen a young female unresponsive on the shoulder of the road in Jackson County. Witnesses said a man, later identified as 48-year-old Billy Jack Hicks, was trying to load her into a white pickup truck. According to WLOS News 13, deputies arrived on the scene and attempted to stop the truck. Billy Hicks ignored their demands and continued on the highway to Harris Regional Hospital. His wife, 34-year-old Danielle, was in the truck suffering from a gunshot wound. She died of her injuries the next day at a hospital in Asheville where she'd been transferred. Danielle was pregnant with her third child at the time of her death. Police interviewed Billy Hicks and charged him with assault with a deadly weapon, inflicting serious injury. At first, he was placed on a 48-hour domestic violence hold. 
He told police Danielle's gunshot wound was self-inflicted. The Silva Herald searched arrest records and found out Billy Hicks had previous arrests for drug possession, violating a domestic violence protective order, probation violations, assault on a female, and simple assault. At present, he is currently in jail without bond awaiting trial for murder. In 2021, three women in the Indigenous Peoples community decided they wanted to shed more light on the crimes of missing and murdered Indigenous women all over the country. The podcast is called We Are Resilient, an MMIW true crime podcast, and it has almost 50 episodes if you want to check it out wherever you get your podcasts. I'll link it in the show notes. And finally, I want to end this episode with a conversation I recently shared with Haywood Talcove, a board member from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. The organization is aware that there is a lack of modern digital investigative tools in the task forces designed to help find missing women and children in Indigenous peoples' communities. Our conversation sheds some light on this ongoing issue. Today we're talking with Haywood Talcove, CEO of LexisNexis Risk Solutions Government Division, and also on the board for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Thank you for joining us today, Haywood. Renee, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about the topic. And we are really looking forward to what you have to share with us. The first thing I wanted to ask is, how can the Bureau of Indian Affairs modernize quickly to end the epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous people? Yeah. Well, you know, the first thing that BIA needs to do is they received over $30 million from Congress for this issue, and they've yet to release a penny. So the first step in the process is for um, the deputy secretary responsible for um, this area needs to go ahead and give that money out to the tribes all across the country so we can get begin to get a handle on the extent of this problem and what type of problem it actually is. But once we have that, What we need to start doing is using modern tools that law enforcement uses all across the country to start looking at these 6,500 individuals that they're gone, they vanished. Are are they runaways? Um, Have they been abducted? Are they involved in human trafficking, child trafficking? Um, Have they been murdered? And the tools that are available today from cell phone forensics to information and analytics and um, databases that show friends, relatives and associates, they would very quickly be able to ascertain the extent of the problem. And they'd also be able to ascertain um, why the child or the female is actually missing. What is it going to take for tribal law enforcement agencies to gain access to these same kinds of tools? I I think it comes down to an equity issue. Um, The tribal lands don't have money and they desperately need access to the $30 million so they can get access to the expertise and the tools and other resources that they need to go ahead and, and investigate these things. One of the things that I'm really concerned about is you're starting to see some states, I think New Mexico is one saying, we're just gonna shut down the program. Um, And I think that's because they don't wanna look. This has been an issue for over a decade 
It's been discussed at NECMEC. It's been discussed in the press. It's been discussed in Congress. Yet all of a sudden, it's not an issue in New Mexico. That doesn't make any sense to me. It almost seems to me like it would have to be some sort of rollout that went across the tribes all at once and implemented. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot you can do. I mean, think about it. Um, everyone leaves digital exhaust, right? And whether it's a tribe up in Maine, the Passamaquoddies or the Penobscots or um, uh, tribes out West, um, including uh, some of the Cherokee Nation and Sioux, um, getting all that data in one spot. And for example, have any of those people uh, that are missing, do they have a credit card? Um, do they have a cell phone? Um, are they in jail? Um, did they graduate from school? It, 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 this The task at hand is very simple. Combining the data and finding out where they are is critical. And it's also important too, for the safety of the individuals that live on tribal land. I mean, not that I have any information, but is there a serial killer? Is there a human trafficking ring that's taking young girls and taking them off the reservation and exploiting them in some other country? I mean, we need to get answers to that. I agree. And that kind of segues into my next question is how has distrust between the tribal law enforcement and federal agencies enabled the lack of modernization we've witnessed across many tribal law enforcement agencies? Yeah, so I don't, you know, I, I spend a lot of time, um, I've actively participated in the Native American Law Enforcement Association for the past 15 years. I, I don't know if there's a lack of trust. Um, there may be some cultural differences. Um, you know, when you're a police officer in a suburban area compared to uh, a tribal uh, or a reservation where there's massive amounts of land and um, there's a lot of connection with the community. But uh, everyone that I've spoken to um, from tribal law enforcement tells me that they want to get this solved. In fact, I did a presentation back in August um, at the Native American Law Enforcement Association meeting, and I talked about this issue. And I had a number of the tribal chiefs come up to me and explain that they want those resources. They want to find out about this. And in, in fact, one of the tribes is working with um, the, the, uh, the city of uh, Las Vegas. Um, so I don't know if it's that big of an issue. There's definitely some cultural sensitivities, um, but no different than, you know, going from New York to Arizona. Um, but, you know, those people in law enforcement, they have a common mission. They want to help people and they want to find out where these individuals are. That's great to hear. So this money, this federal money that has been allocated to upgrade these systems, it has been released or it just hasn't been implemented? That's that's what I'm not yeah, clear on. So the money, so Congress did its job. Mm -hmm. uh, they uh, passed a bill. They created a policy. They transferred the money over to the Bureau of Indian Affairs. But the Bureau of Indian Affairs hasn't released the money to the tribes. So there's $30 million that was airmarked by policymakers to begin to solve this problem and nothing's happened. In fact, 
a number of the senators, um, including uh, um, a number of the senators have written BIA and demanded answers. And so far, they've heard nothing back. Okay, so it's a bureaucratic tie up is what it sounds like. On that end, it could just be a disagreement in policy. Sometimes you have the elected officials and the bureaucracy not aligned um, with different agendas. I, I, I don't know. Um, but it's it's odd that there's money there to solve a problem. And some states are actually shutting down their programs right now. Um, I, part of it is they just don't have the resources to do it. Well, it would also take staffing and people to spearhead those programs too, I imagine. Yep. Well, thank you for joining us today and kind of updating us on what's going on. It's encouraging to know that there is money allocated towards these cases. It's just how do we figure out how to go from there, it sounds like. Yeah, it, the, the most important thing is you can't have 6,500 people missing. Right. We need to know what's going on. Is there a child trafficking ring? Is there a serial killer? Um, is there a prevalence of domestic violence going on and women have been murdered? We need to know the answers to those questions. And it's imperative that it not languish any longer. Um, you know, people deserve to live in peace. People deserve to feel comfortable and free and Everything that I've read over the past 10 years tells me there's a problem. So I appreciate the opportunity, Renee, and um, look forward to uh, talking to you again. Okay, thank you again so much. Thank you. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. Be sure to tune in next week as we'll be kicking off a fun listener appreciation giveaway and I'll share my review of journalist Mandy Matney's memoir, Blood on Their Hands, Murder, Corruption, and the Fall of the Murdoch Dynasty, along with new updates in the case. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd also like to support the show in a small way, you can buy me a coffee over at buymeacoffee.com, Renee Robertson. Thank you so much for those who have already supported me through this platform. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. Sound editing is provided by Daniel Robertson. Thanks so much for listening.